Hello, welcome to Keeping Athena Company. Just a little heads up ahead of what is going to be a very enjoyable 50 or so minutes for you. It's going to have a little down the line quality to the sound. Um, I had to use a backup recording for this because my main recordings just didn't sound good at all. Uh, I don't know why. Um, It's probably because I'm not a very good producer of podcasts, as regular listeners will know. But as I always say, quality of the sound, not so great. Quality of the conversation, fantastic as always. I've got a wonderful guest lined up for you. We talk about some deep, 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 deep things as always. So I'm going to stop apologising for how bad my production skills are. And I'm going to allow you to enjoy this episode of Keeping Athena Company. My name is Athena Kablenu. I'm a stand-up comedian, podcaster and writer and a parent, which is lovely. But as you will know, if you listen to this podcast, being a parent of a toddler does mean you do miss adult conversation every now and again. To deal with that, I invite a friend round to keep my company. Um, obviously, it's it's still lockdown. I can't believe I... Oh, is it lockdown? I'm not sure. Are we... Because uh, uh, like we're supposed to go to the cinema and go out and eat and meet our friends, but also... We're not. Anyway, I'm still doing this online, guys. So I've invited one of my friends who I've wanted to get on the podcast for ages. And I thought, no, I want to see you in person and have a eat your plantain with me. But it's not going to happen. So we're going to have to do this online. So welcome to Keeping Athena Company, Javi McGrath. Hey, how are you, you doing? Yeah, there. You are there. <laughs> I am here. Hey. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Lovely to chat to you, Athena. It is. It's been a little while, but I feel like... What's happened with COVID, it's made 2020 really weird in that it feels like I, I spoke to you yesterday, but I know it's been months. Like, I know, you know it's been months. It's insane, though, because, like, the year is almost over and we've been, like, in the days not knowing whether we're going or coming. It's just, like, the most bizarre thing ever. How have you been keeping? How has the, how's the, how's the spring and summer for you? Oh, uh, you know, it, it was a really bizarre thing uh, because for a really long time, I always just... Uh, wanted just to be able to stay home and write <laughs> and <laughs> so when um when obviously the, the whole thing happened and we couldn't go to any place I started to panic I was like oh my god this this feels scary that we can't do anything we can't go out we can't do all of this and then I thought to myself hang on this is kind of what I always wanted to happen I always hoped that I would get a chance to sit down and write so yeah I just spend all my time writing and can are we allowed to talk about what you were writing Yes, I have written a new fiction. <laughs> oh, like a novel? I, I've written a novel and a kid's book. <laughs> oh my gosh, how exciting, because your first novel was, a, can I call it a work of creative non-fiction, your first novel, or was it uh, was it autobiographical? Uh, yeah, autobiographical. It, it, it was a memoir, so basically about me and uh, written by me, so yeah. Um, yeah, but then I did so much research when I was uh, doing my memoir that I thought, oh my God, this is so fascinating. I want to actually write fiction. So then uh, I started uh, and uh, I, I finished the second draft of the book, so I sent it off to my editor and uh, coincidentally I put two stories together and uh, so my editor said actually you need to separate this and then it suddenly hit me that one is a kid's book and the other is fiction so I separated the two so I ended up having two books a a work of fiction and a children's book. (laughs) Wow so not many people are so lucky with their productivity and creativity (laughs) with two projects when they sit down to write one and can we talk about like thematically what they're about or is it all hush hush? 
Uh, well, it's it, well, kind of because oh. I well, it, it sort of ties into um sort of me being Kenyan and all of that stuff. I did a lot of research, so there's a mythology. There's a lot of African mythology that people don't actually know. Even people in Kenya don't even know. People of my tribe don't even know, which is really fascinating. So when I was mm. re- researching for my memoir, I was like, whoa, well, this is so so fascinating. And then I thought, okay, this is great. I'm just going to write fiction uh with this so yeah it's that's kind of the stuff so um hopefully um i don't know when it's gonna be out obviously because it's it's you know it's with my editor and then they the decisions are made and all of that stuff you know how these things work they take forever absolutely and your kids book what age what age uh, kids book is it um i think it's going to be sort of uh not very young but it's going to be maybe fr- from about seven eight years old Oh, okay. Yeah. So, like, just below young adult, but not quite something yeah. that more two-year-old yeah. can enjoy. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. How exciting. So, I we met because, as comedians, yes. like, we met doing stand-up. Yeah. Did you always want to be a novelist, or did you find that stand-up wasn't quite getting to the parts you wanted to reach, and writing books might help you to do that? Well, uh, yes and no. Uh, when I was 15, I sat down and I wrote uh, a chapter uh, of now what is kind of my memoir. <laughs> and uh, I gave it to my boyfriend at the time. And I said, this is what I've been writing. And he said, oh my God, this is really good. Did you write it or did you copy it from somewhere? And I was like, mm, no, I wrote it. <laughs> it's rude. Yeah, I know. That's rude. That's really rude. Yeah. And and then I uh, obviously got um, sort of, you know, sidetracked by life, you know, clubs to go and fun to be had and, you know, all that stuff. I At the back of my mind, I always knew that I was I would like to write a book. And um, then I read a book by John Chunk called Wild Swans. And I was like, I yes. want to write a book like this. So I, um, yeah. But then the time was never right for me to sit down and, and start writing because this is the biggest problem for writers or would want to or would be writers is actually sitting down and getting started. And the only time um, I felt that like now, sit down right now and write was when my dad died. And I thought, oh God, actually pe- people do die and these things happen and oh wow. So then I, I sat down and I started writing. And then once I started writing, I realized that this is what I have been looking forward to doing all my life. So yeah, I love writing. I enjoy writing. It's really interesting that you reference Wild Swan because yeah. I've, I mean, I've read Wild Swan. I think, mm. I think it's one of those books that lots of people have read yeah. or lots of read and it's uh, as far as I remember, it's about three generations of women yeah. in China. Yeah. Um, and it's epic. Oh, um, it's incredible. Have you thought about going backwards into your family history to, yes. to expand your memoir to write about that? Uh, yeah, that's literally because when I started writing my memoir, th- that was pretty much what my memoir did to me because I could not understand myself. I could not understand uh, my parents until I went back in history. And so and this is why I had to do a lot of research going back in history, trying to understand because we are who we are because of those that came before us. So um, I had to do a lot of uh, research and actually uh, it became a book about me, about my family, the generations of my family and about the wider history, which kind of is like John Chong's book. What I find really interesting um, generally about, I know Africa is not a country, but yeah. sometimes it's helped useful shorthand to yes. talk about the continent in this way. Yeah. When we talk about understanding 
generations yeah. going back in African history. Yes. It's really challenging to do that. It's not like we can go online yeah. and see what Ghana looked like in 1600s in the same way I can go online and see what London looks like in the 1600s. Like I can go around a city of London and I can see buildings that literally tell me why they are there mm. and when they were built. Whereas if I go to Ghana, yeah. like so much was destroyed. Yeah. Anything that you see almost feels like the British put it there. Um, yeah, but the thing is, Athena, is that this the material does exist, but it's only reserved for the wealthy. Yeah. So right. fortunately, uh, I have been very, very fortunate because I got a, a membership to the London Library. And the London Library is basically a, a gold mine for stuff mm. like that. So I have found books about, you know, written... so what, can I stop you? What is the London Library? I've never heard of it. Uh, and you wouldn't because it's an, it's it's basically a place where um you, you know you pay a shitload sorry a lot of money to, okay, to be a member yeah fuckload of money to be a member wow you pay a fuckload of money to be a member and literally you can find books that were written in fifteen hundreds in any books you can find they've got over a million. Uh, books there and I have got books and I was reading about what. East Africa about what Africa was like the way they describe it is like so I have had got uh, several memoirs out so that's what I was reading all these people who traveled across Africa and just like really documenting what they found what it was like and all of this stuff and it's just fascinating so uh yeah but but how, how would you even know because you will never get this information from your local library and it's just fascinating you can get books that were written in eight like the one i've got now the one i'm re re uh, reading this guy wrote it in 1898 and it's 1898 and this is him living amongst my tribe wow and this is the, most of these books are from the european gaze and these are europeans documenting or what they found when they went to visit yes. places in Africa. Yes. Well, and, and to be and this is at a stage where they probably haven't decided to be super racist yet. Yes. So they're just being honest. Um, they're, they're, they they're being honest. They're very racist, but they they are also being very honest because the way they describe you know sometimes even if you're racist you still can describe the the the, the sort of the landscape seriously is um, some of the books like I don't know if you've read this book it's uh, it's called White Man's Country and it's about Kenya. Uh, it was written by somebody called um, uh, Elspeth Huxley. It's, so he was just justifying why the, the British should take Kenya from the natives. And it was just awful, like the justification. And, uh, you know, it was just bad. But what he does do is he gives an account of what they were doing, how their lives were, and how basically they were very content with very little, how uh, they basically, you know, they basically uh, uh, lived and work was just, just a small part of their living. So whereas now we are slaves to work, you know, you, you have to work very long hours or whatever. And uh, they didn't want to work for the Europeans. 
And so that was the biggest problem, that they didn't want to work for the Europeans. And so they were, he was trying to find ways, a justification of basically drafting them into forced labor and uh, the methods with which they would be forced to. So they introduced taxes. And so they said every family has to pay a tax. In order to pay a tax, you have to have money. In order to have money, you have then to work for these Europeans. What happens if you don't pay taxes? They slaughter the man of the house. <laughs> And I just casually put it too. It's like you know, it's like when you don't when you in this country now, if yeah. you don't fill in your tax return, yeah, you get like a fine. Yeah, so if you don't do it on time, you get a fine, and they just and you know they just casually put in. Yeah, if you don't do this, we'll kill the man of the house. Yeah, like that's literally. I have this thing about um, Black Lives Matter, yeah. and I think that whilst I think that as a movement, I think oh ultimately it's positive and a force for good yeah i have a real issue with the fact that we have to walk around and say hey guys black lives matter like it's not much of a reach um <sighs> yeah and i, I what i'd love mm. is for the emphasis to be on or how strange the behavior europeans is when it comes to africans I, I want the emphasis to be on white people you're really weird sort it out and this is a really good example of that there's well, no yeah. point in saying walking around saying black lives matter because people don't understand why we're saying it not less than 100 years ago yeah. we're going into we were walking into countries and saying if you don't pay us money yeah. that you don't even owe us we're just telling you you, you you need to pay us if you don't pay this money to us we're going to kill that guy over there so but, but like listen to ago. this listen to this burden powell what comes to mind when you think about burden powell oh he's an awful man so, i'm probably not the person to ask i don't idolize any of these people yeah. no yes he's i'm aware of, his, of him and yes he's an unpleasant individual well yeah so like like the book i was reading is is about this is a memoir from the from this young man who ran away from home to go to africa like like they did and he's talking <laughs> and he's talking about how they um they hounded out this african chief and uh, who refused to surrender, and then they hounded him out, and how they, basically they, um, they, uh, uh, they they killed him by shooting, by uh, what what did the execution by by shooting, and so they offered to, and this was Burden Powell was in charge, and they offered him to cover his eyes, and he said no, I just want to look at you as you kill me, and they just shot him, you know, loads of bullets into this man. What had he done? Absolutely nothing justified them and they assassinated him like a dog exactly that it's just i don't think people understand the depravity no no they they, they they don't get what europeans have done to africa and you talk about these things they call you racist and it's just it's grotesque you know you you just you know sometimes i read about these things and i just find myself just feeling angry and sad that a lot of people in the uk don't actually understand the crimes that have, that have been committed in their name is You're absolutely right. And sorry to interrupt, but this is the other thing that annoys me. When people say you've got to teach black history, this is European history. It's not to do with us. Yeah. This is more, there was a white person there doing all the slaughtering. Like this idea. Well, this is it. Teaching black history is this isolated thing that happens in a vacuum. Oh, look, it's black people doing black things. This is your history. Yes, it is it's the murderous things. Ourselves. Yeah. It is the murderer things that, that you actually have done. And the reason they don't want to teach this history is because it is shameful. It's about basically them just going around different places, torturing and massacring and raping women. That's exactly what it is. And it's, I guess it's really difficult to teach that your your ancestors are, were, um, you know, I don't know if, if still carries on, but your ancestors, you know, were, were just these gruesome people who just went around torturing natives and murdering them. And, um, you know, it's quite a difficult one to teach, and I doubt that, that they will ever teach it comprehensively. But I also uh, was reading something the other day 
uh, which shocked me. <laughs> he was on Twitter, so it must be true. <laughs> <laughs> it say that 92% of the UK population have a reaching age of 12 and, and people are confirming it. I don't think that surprises me, actually, because I, they tell you why. Yeah. When I used to work in as like a, in a proper job, hmm. we were uh, we were always taught about using plain English because some a lot of the stuff that I would have to do has yeah. to be read by like vast amounts of people. Anyway, what am I getting at? You're all when you're taught to write in plain English, yeah. you are told to assume people have a reading age of eight. So you have to, this is totally true. So uh, this might have, by, by the way, it's been a long time since I've done that plain English course and just by practice what I used to practice. But if you write, and if you have a pamphlet in, in your hand or from any kind of public sector organisation or any kind of um, thing where something's conveying important information to you, mm. it should be written in a way an eight-year-old can understand. Um, That's and that was, insane. Yeah. So it doesn't surprise me that, that you know, we we... We now think that most population has a reading age as well. People don't read as much as we think they do. And we know they don't because they're not very bright. People aren't that smart. People, I look around yeah. and I, you know, I just, all you've got to do is look at the comments section of a newspaper article. Yeah. And it's quite clear just from the spelling and grammar alone, they probably do have a reading age as well. But it is an immense amount of privilege that comes from being educated. Oh, and yeah. I think that. I think that I think this country is very, especially in the last sort of ten years, yeah. especially since the coalition came in, and then obviously now it's the Tory government. Yeah. They've been very comfortable with the idea of having like a two-tier system, where kind of privileged people get to go to academies and maybe yeah. grammar schools and maybe free schools, yeah. and give them this like education that is really flexible yeah. and intellectual and yeah. challenges them, and everyone else just gets to stick with you know the bare minimum. Um, uh, and if you look at the um, education system uh, under private and education system under state schools, it is shockingly different. And uh, well, this is it. You have to pay for privilege and only those people who have the money who can afford to pay for this privilege, their kids will get this this level of education. It's just incredible. But the, um, but I, I don't I, I don't get it. Personally, I don't get it because like, you know, I've grown up in Africa and we are supposed to be poor and whatever. But you go to like, even if you go to a slum and chat to children and you ask them who is the president of America, they know. Like I was talking to uh, these girls uh, when I was I was spending a lot of time at Edinburgh University and uh, I was talking to these um, like uh, young white girls who were studying international development and their disillusionment with uh, when they go to Africa to work in those orphanages <laughs> because usually they think that they're going to find all these kids with flies on their eyes and, you know, all of this, you know, all of them drinking dirty water waiting to die. And then they just find like all these children who speak better English than they do, <laughs> who are really, you know, knowledgeable. And they say they feel really disillusioned and cheated by all of the years that they spend being told that this is Africa. And then they turn up, they feel rather uh, misled, which is which is interesting to hear. It is. And it shows you the level of indoctrination that happens. Yeah. Absolutely. On both sides, because on the other side of the coin is there's indoctrination on the continent about how amazing white people are. Like, I think if I think genuinely think, I mean, I'm from Ghana, so that's what I can speak on. I genuinely think people in Ghana would be shocked by the quality of life some people have in this country. 
Oh, they, I mean, it's the same weekend. Yeah. And it happens all the time. People yeah. come over here thinking yeah. I'd rather work in the UK and earn pounds <laughs> yeah. stay in Ghana. And, and then it's like your life would have been better in Ghana. <laughs> like, you know, it's such an important message. One of the things that annoys me about the conversation around the refugee crisis and immigrant crisis is that a lot of these people are getting conned they're giving their money to traffickers yeah. to get to the uk yeah. and they think life would be better here and it's the propaganda that, that came from colonialism it's the propaganda that comes from the traffickers that's making them ruin their lives when i was um i was in kenya not long ago uh somebody said oh you know it was better when we were ruled by the british and i was like what <laughs> What? No, they that stuff. It's like it's like really. Did you see that Twitter thread by those two white dudes who managed to talk their way into Ghana's vice president's office? No, you I know, didn't. They, I didn't. Two. I mean, it, it is. I'll send you an Instagram thing about it. But two nobodies, two white nobodies, decided they want to build. They wanted to build a city in Nigeria. Right. It didn't work out, but they ended up having a meeting with the vice president's office in Ghana. Um, and so they did a whole Twitter thread about, hey guys, let's show you, let me tell you how we got got ourselves into a meeting with the vice president of Ghana. And I just thought, what? this is so tone deaf. But also I was embarrassed on behalf of, of the people in Ghana yeah. who decided that these two white nobodies yeah. should have that audience. This is you know? incredible. And yeah, we have to take responsibility for the way we still give white people credit that is unearned. And you know what? It's so true, though, because like the propaganda is, like you say, two ways, uh, because like sometimes I go to Kenya and I'm like, oh, my God, I've got a headache. I just got a, got a headache because like I was um, because I wanted my book to be available to people in Kenya and to be available um, with, you know, sort of a low price so that, you know, as many people as possible can read it because it's partly historical. And I felt that a lot of schools would be uh would benefit and a lot of school children would benefit from reading it so i got into discussions with this uh, kenyan publisher and basically he said yeah he wanted to he would publish the book but he wanted me to remove all the elements of colonialism i was like what what is that why why would you do that i don't understand it like what literally why would you do that maybe i also there's trauma attached to it too I think, I think there's so. more attached to it. I think, I think the same the same way the education system failed yeah. the country, yeah. um, it also fails the countries or the places that were colonized yeah. and they don't learn this Because why would you want to dig it up? Why? Yeah. I um, think I think they reconcile ourselves with it. Because if we don't, yeah. we just, we don't we don't learn to to stop being passive in the face of continued neocolonialism. Oh, oh, I know. Oh, I know. And and I was like, that is actually really sad that you would want to, to remove all the th an, an explanation of what it is that actually caused all this dysfunction, but you want to remove it. And I, yeah, I, I obviously I didn't do it because I was like, no, I'm not going to change my book. Just, you know, the whole reason I wanted it sold in Kenya so that people can read and hopefully understand from from my trauma exactly where the trauma is coming from. But now you want to remove that, then what is it going to be left? It's ridiculous. Don't forget as well, if you are politically minded mm. on the continent, and this yeah. probably stands for other places too, if yeah. you are a person of influence who does care about these things, yeah. the West will just assassinate you anyway. True. That's the history. It's I true. mean, I'm not exaggerating. True, true. When, yeah, yeah. You know, in the 70s and 60s and even 80s, oh, yeah. um, 
where if you had anything to say yeah. that was going to disrupt the status quo, or oh, yeah. people you're gone. about their oppression, they killed you. It's still the <laughs> That's same. That's what they did. They dissolve yeah. you in acid, they'll shoot you in the head, oh. and all these things. I'm not going to mention the, 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 the different cases. You can, people can find out for themselves. I'm bored talking about them. So what has happened is we've sort of bred passivity yeah. into the discourse yeah. of the continent because yeah. we have been so heav- heavily punished yeah by standing up for ourselves, yeah. we've kind of learned to, to be silent and then we've learned to reward silence. Yeah. And it's heartbreaking for us in the diaspora because yeah. we see it more clearly than anyone because we come over here, we get discriminated against, yeah. we come over here and we can see the exploitation yeah. and the, 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 the discrepancies in, in quality of life. Yeah. And we're stuck in the middle of it. Yeah, and the thing is unheard by both sides. You know, yes. they're not hearing you and they, there's nothing you can do to, you know, sometimes you just feel like you're talking to people from the outside of the glass because you're like, uh, you know, they, they don't see where you're coming from. And again, in both sides. Yeah, I, I you know, it, exactly as you said it, we're stuck in the middle and it's frustrating because you've got a clearer picture, but, but they, they don't and they don't necessarily want to have that clearer picture. It's, just, it's insane. Well, also, once you have that picture, we, you have a sense of powerlessness because it's yeah. actually very yeah. difficult. For me. How do you change the way the yeah. World Bank works? How do you change uh, the way the IMF works? How do you how do you get your country to stop no paying power. back? Yeah, interest on debts they've already paid back a hundred times over. Yeah, um, I don't know, but I think it it all starts with education. It absolutely absolutely starts their education um, because once you're educated yeah. um, you don't stand for the shit anymore yeah. <laughs> or, you, uh, you, or you, you become more resilient to, to people who will stand yeah stand but, but the, the, the thing is the internet actually perhaps maybe is our saviour because with the internet they actually see how many people drown they see and they hear what uh, so, so you know like my cousin in the village she watches the news a lot like the BBC news and stuff like that so she can hear the narrative and what they're saying about immigrants and all of that stuff so the the internationalness or the globalness of, of the news and everything hopefully is going to start to sink in that you know life is, isn't actually and she was saying to me that she sees all the people in America protesting for their rights people in France protesting people in the UK protesting and she was shocked because she was like, what, what are they protesting for? It's like better lives, <laughs> you know, <laughs> better lives, you know, like, you know, I look at her, you know, she's got a, just a simple house with two bedrooms and, you know, and uh, she's got a job. And the thing is that sometimes people may, may see that as not enough. They may think that uh, perhaps, you know, you get paid more when you go abroad and stuff like that. But then you look at all these uh, you know, all, all these immigrants and the quality of life that they have, and oh, it's just insane. I, re- I was rereading this book called The Divide oh, uh, yeah. recently. I just finished it, and it's a book about uh, basically it tries to explain why there are poor countries and why there are rich countries and why that's been the same. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the there was this amazing statistic in it, and in the in the book, uh, this guy stands Jason Hickel. He says that if everybody lived the same lifestyle, yeah as somebody who's an average Westerner. So yeah. not like Bill Gates, yeah. an average an average Westerner, probably like someone who uses less than me. I would say I live in above average life as a Westerner. Yeah. Um, that the, we would need three and a half planets. So <laughs> if we ate like that average person, if we consumed goods like wow. that average person, if we traveled really? like that average person, we would need three and a half planets. Wow. There's nothing wrong about the way we live because that means if we want people who are from 
um, underdeveloped countries or deprived places yeah. to have the same lifestyles as us. That's actually physically impossible. It cannot be done. Yeah, but we, yeah, we have to actually yeah. have a slower standard of living. Yeah, that's and that, that's when you really understand the privilege of growing up in a colonized country or in the, in the, in the country of a, a country that was a colonizer. Yeah, yeah. because you realize how much was taken. So oh. we live in the palace. We, we might, might not feel like every field doesn't feel like I live in in some <laughs> heavenly place. You know, but I look around me yeah. and I look at all, all my stuff. Yeah, look at my laptop. Yeah, this microphone I'm speaking to you down at. Yeah, uh, uh, down through my phone, yeah. my headphone. Yeah, I'm looking at another LCD screen. Yeah. I'm looking at chairs. Yeah. I'm looking at sideboards. Yeah. I'm looking at lamps. I'm looking at blinds. I'm yeah. looking at another sofa. I've yeah. got a bloody conservatory. You don't well. sit in it. Do you know what I mean? Like every everything now stops mm. being something that's normal, yeah. and it stops being something that's actually really unreasonable. And we've been conditioned into thinking this is what we need to live. Because... But yeah, but it's even also yeah our, our habits. And I feel you know I'm I'm a consumer, and uh, sometimes I feel really bad because I think well I should only ever buy like good quality clothes and and never. Um, sort of shop in all these places that are very exploitative but then I think which places aren't exploitative you know which are there places are there clothes that are not exploitative are there you know well my thing is second hand now yeah. for a little while I was materialistic I wanted certain things yeah. and after as I started to interrogate that yeah. um, I screw out of it to the yeah. point where I wouldn't say I don't buy things mm. but i'm definitely anti-consumerist and i don't shop and if i buy something i really challenge myself it's like and i ask i always ask myself a question if i'm buying something that isn't like food which you kind of need to subsist on yeah. if i it's i always think can i live without it yeah and if i can i do so and if i can't i buy it and that's generally what guides my life i think we can consume it and i think we can um buy more secondhand stuff yeah yeah and you know the thing and buy secondhand yeah but but even if we're not buying secondhand just buy clothes that last for a long time because like for us like when we were growing up in africa many people in africa wear something for a really long time you know and and this this because we valued our clothes like your clothes were made by the tailor and when the, the effort into making the clothes is not like going to to Primark and just getting things for 99p, you've got no value for them. You know, you just wear it twice and be happy to throw it, you know. But um, when something is actually physically made for you, you had you measured and you had these things made, it's really difficult for people to just throw stuff. They they don't. They don't just throw stuff. And uh, the way people just, you know, shop here and then they're like, oh, yeah, just bug them up and get rid of them. It's Yeah, I find it really difficult to just get rid of stuff. I don't know. Yeah, I don't throw away useful. I've got my house is full of broken things, but yeah. I'm like, I can fix it. Yeah. <laughs> Oh my God, yeah. It's uh, but then you know, COVID has has bring brought in a new spanner into the world, hasn't it? I think it's made people more considerate. I think that it's made people think. I mean, for example, like change the subject a little bit yeah. because we were in lockdown during Black Lives Matter. People listened. Yeah. And I think generally now we're in in lockdown. People are thinking about. Because the shops sold out of everything at the beginning. So people start to think about stuff and habits. Yeah. I think people are, are, are thinking, people couldn't shop because shops were closed. Yeah. So they're thinking about, you know, what they would, how much money they save. Yeah. Oh, um, loads, loads of money. Yeah. Because, yeah, just, just thinking like, you know, even the fuel, you know, like you spend, yeah. like as a comedian, um, traveling across the country, you know, spending so much money on fuel. 
or even planes and trains and all of that stuff and then suddenly you're not spending any of that money you can't go to the pub like you know we used to go to the pub when i was home you know spend a fair bit of money restaurants and all of this and it's like oh suddenly you're not spending any money so you've got <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah but, and I think it's made people question what the economy is. So yeah. we keep getting told, go and save the economy, go shopping, yeah. go to work, get the bus, get the train. Yeah. And it's like, no, we don't want to do those things, actually. And we shouldn't We shouldn't be forced to do those things. Yeah, because the economy, is, the, the economy is just making us slaves to all of these things so that you work, so that you can buy a new thing, you can buy this, you can buy this. And then, you know, the quality of life, you know, like... Um, People who work in offices, obviously for 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 us, it's different because, like you know, I I am a writer. I I I work from home, and you know, other than that, I go to gigs and stuff like that. Um, but people who have to commute to work, you know, the quality of life commuting seems so like you're all programmed to just get up in the morning, go to, to work, and you know, an hour to work and an hour back. And suddenly they realize I can do exact same amount of work from my house, you know, and possibly yeah. more productive because they're not exactly. spending all this time commuting. And people are saying, okay, fine. Well, you know, there are businesses that will lose out because we're not buying our sandwiches. <laughs> we're not buying coffee. But like, and I feel genuinely sad that yeah. that's happening because people work those places. But like habits change. No one, no one tells us, um, that we need to change our habits when other industries die. No one made us go to Woolworths. No. When Woolworths was, 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 when CNA closed down, no one made me go there yeah. to stop and that. Like, I do think that if, if we're going to live in a society in which, which is a supply and demand based, yeah. if we don't demand this anymore, yeah. then we, we don't, we shouldn't be forced to, to buy. I find it really odd that people believe capitalism is this like self-sustaining living, breathing Of course thing. it's not. Of and course it's not. Break, we're told to intervene. So I it's mean, like, well, hold on a minute. Yeah. If, if, if it's self-sustaining, well, why be... why should we intervene? Exactly. Like surely, the, or if capitalism is practiced properly, yeah. if business isn't viable anymore, it yeah. goes both. Well, That's and the thing works. is, and the thing is, capitalism is exploitative because if you see a lot right. of manufacturing, it, it comes from you know like clothes. They come from Bangladesh. Look at the work conditions. If you look at chocolate, it comes from um, you know the child slaves in in the Gambia and in uh, in Burkina Faso. Uh, if you look at coffee, it's been the same. Like if you, you wouldn't even notice what's happened in Kenya because like I I grew up on a coffee farm. All those coffee farms have all been sold and cut up, chopped up into small plots because they're like, we, they don't make any money from selling coffee. The Europeans don't pay any any money for coffee. They don't pay a, a single penny. Like my yeah. dad. Yeah, the money's going somewhere because you buy, you buy a cup of coffee in Starbucks, which is three pounds. Of course. But yeah. they, they, the farmers, yeah, the farmers don't get any money for the coffee. And so, the, and so basically, I, I remember reading somewhere, and this is quite a while back, and I, I remember thinking, what? It said that coffee will be extinct in 80 years. But this is this is going way, 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 way back before I was even reading all this stuff. It's like, yeah, I can see why it will be extinct. Because nobody wants to work for free. <laughs> yeah. And capitalism only functions by taking a product and getting people to pay substandard make it as cheaply as possible but get people to pay as much as they can for it well, it's, sustainable. it's not sustainable because the people who are making it yeah. can't be paid as little as possible they have to live as well um and we want and this is what i want i want countries yeah. with specialized economies to realize this i want people making chocolate yeah. 
cocoa, yeah. bananas, yeah. coffee. I want them to realise the value of their product. But they're forced to, you know, they can't control the prices. And this is this is um the frustrating the frustrating thing. This is where the neocolonialism comes into it. Yeah. How it's an economic empire now. I mean it actually started off as an economic empire. It was in terms of the British, it was economic it was an economic empire for centuries. Yeah. It only became formal yeah. in the sort of late nineteenth century. Yeah. People forget that. People forget that the British empire lasted less than a hundred years. <laughs> and oh, also yeah. Oh, rubbish. Yeah. Egyptians, thousands of about four thousand years of Egyptian Empire. Okay, the Romans, how many years? Maybe 2000? I'm making it up, I'm not sure, but the Roman Empire lasted for a very long time. British Empire, what, 70 years? Yeah, if that. If that. In Kenya, they only lasted 50 years. And then yeah. they were kicked out of uh, Kenya because they were A, incompetent, and B, uh, basically too, uh, uh, too barbaric. Too violent. Oh, yeah, too violent. Barbarians but... for that long. I mean, this is and this is why the the racial element of colonization actually didn't make any economic sense anyway. Well, this is it. it, it, it there was twenty nine thousand white settlers in Kenya. Twenty nine thousand, and they treated their millions of Africans so brutally, and like they didn't think at some point that they were going to be outnumbered. You know. There's, well, uh, look at South Africa. South Africa is about eight percent, eight or nine percent white population. Yeah, when I yeah. learned that, I was shocked because when you grow up, you think it's fifty percent. Yeah, no, the fucking audacity. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm skipping around. But I read a, a, a book. I've got what it's called, but it's a collection of. It was a collection of Nelson Mandela's speeches before he was put into jail. Oh. Oh, but yeah. after, after his, his, I think his final trial, he, went, he was trial, he was on trial four times, I think. I've got a tell me anyway. Right. He had loads of trials, and it basically collected all his speeches yeah. until he went to jail. Well, and I just thought, this man, this African man, this yeah. South African man, yeah. has to get up and plead to white people who are the eight percent to just calm yeah. the fuck down. Yeah, the whole book of speeches saying, "What's wrong with you people? You're mad." And he, it's just incredible. It just, it strikes me as insane. And the thing that- is, and the thing is, like I say, like they would have actually been in Kenya to this day if they had treated Ken- the Kenyans a little bit nicer. But they were just shambolic. They were just so awful. And so racist that basically even even the people who were docile turned against them and they were kicked out because of just how barbaric they were. But you know what? It's, it's interesting because you, you look at, um, you know, like you were talking about civilizations. Africa had huge civilizations, you know. I didn't, I didn't even know that Ethiopia was the only African country to have a colony. So, Why? So and, uh, yeah, but, but Ethiopians, uh, they colonized Yemen for 100 years. Oh, well, I didn't know that. Yeah, and the reason Egypt is the way they are today is because they were colonized by Ethiopians. And, uh, you know, because like how they always sort of select e- Egypt to sort of for ancient civilization, all of that came from the Ethiopians. And um, the reason that Ethiopia was not colonized is because during the scramble for Africa, uh, the emperor of Ethiopia was the only African leader to be present in the Berlin conference because they were all colonizers. <laughs> I didn't know that it was, he was there. In yeah. fact, I've just watched a documentary on Netflix about Nigeria and they covered a burning conference and they don't they don't um, reveal that he was there at all. And I've learned about well, the, the burning conference and I never, I never knew that. Me I'm neither. Not, I'm the way because I've got some more reasons to do. But this is what we call about what is, well, this is the, what, all part of the way history is kind of whitewashed and yeah. these inconvenient truths. Um, I think it's, it's so important to portray African 
empires, as in ancient African empires and and leaders as as um, fallible and as prone to delusions of grandeur as anyone else, because this idea that only white people can be mad is just ridiculous. But, but it's not even that. And it, it further, it further, um, uh, it, it further continues this idea that white people are powerful and supreme. It's like no, no, no other people were mad too. Yeah, <laughs> you know, but, but the thing is, yeah, if if mad. you look at if you look at the um, Sudan, Sudan has as many temples and as many. You know, pyramids as m- m- more pyramids actually than Egypt, but they never no. ever talk about the Sudan. They never talk about it, no, and they never talk about the kind of expense that it would take to build those things and the architectural knowledge and the ambition, of course, and the you know, and like I said, delusions of grandeur or or or, or just the organization, yeah. Um, and this is why I thought, you know what, like uh, Chinua Chebe said that if you uh, don't like the narrative, write your own. And so yeah. I thought I was, I'm just gonna start writing because it is fascinating to me anyway. I I didn't actually know just how powerful the kingdom of Abyssinia was. I didn't actually know about their royalty. Their royalty goes all the way back to the Queen of Sheba, and you you just look at all of this and because you're told Africa had no history, it's like what Africa? That was uh, Hugh Trevor Roper who said Africa had no history. It's because it's got very good history, and it's only that that makes them not want to talk about the African history because it would, um, I don't know, destroy the myth of white supremacy. Oh, well, that's right. That's Egyptology. So when they when they realised how much Egyptians knew about math and architecture and yeah. how long they reigned for and yeah. just basically how advanced they were, they just pretended that they were sort of beige people. Yeah. <laughs> but this is deliberate. This is, it's of course it's deliberate. They, they did everything within their power to deny that um, Egyptians had Afro hair, for example. Including so, to, including br- breaking the noses of the... Um, yes, yes. Yeah. Um, to, 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 to deny the, the breadth the width of the noses, um, they would find, they would literally find Afro cones in tools <laughs> yeah. and just like throw them away. Because <laughs> they're like, oh shit, no, 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 we can't have this. No, you know, no, no, like, we're superior, we're superior. It's just like, why? Like, what do you get from that? That's so odd. And they don't, and this is what I mean about there was a very unique, there was a unique thing that happened or has happened yeah. when a white person meets a black African person. They just lose their fucking minds. Like when they met everyone else on the planet, they, yeah. they definitely brutalised them, they raped them and they robbed them of their resources. Yeah. But when they met Africans, they were like, no, I'm going to take your name, I'm going to erase your religion, yeah. I'm going to pretend you're not human. It's like, what, why? And you see it to this day in, in the way people react to Africans, it plays out in police brutality, for example. They've got away, they don't kill everybody, they don't just kill black people. Yeah. They just kill more black people, um, but disproportionately. I don't understand it either. Is it because they're threatened? You know what, like, as I was reading, like, when they they arrived sort of inland uh, and, and they saw the African men and just how the, physic, the physique of African men, because they were, um, their physiques, was just incredible because obviously they had no fat on them. These guys were very lean, very muscular. They, the men. I want to go to Edmonton Green because that's not what I see. Where is this place? I'd love to go there. Oh my that god! Like I tell you what, we were in Mombasa once, 
and my husband and I, we, we were sat down watching them load up a ship and all the men, you know, like how all those models looked like, you know, the Calvin Klein models, you know, how they look with their chiseled bodies and stuff like that. Yeah. All these men, they look like that sort of loading up the ship. But, and obviously... Do you know what? I'll tell you what it is. It's lifestyle. Yeah, it's a lifestyle. I'll say Ghana's the same. If you yeah. go around Ghana, don't worry, we, we like to chop in Ghana. So there's a lot of, there's, you know, we've got meat on us in Ghana. However, yeah. you see a lot of young men looking really oh. Oh, I'm and telling you, you. I'm telling yeah. you. And then the other thing is that the men, especially the men like in East Africa and probably most of Africa, they used to walk around naked. And uh, they thought, this is the conversations they thought, that if he were to, to, to have sex with a white woman, you know, they, they really felt insecure. They were like, can you imagine if this beast of a man were to have sex with a white woman? Oh my God, what would happen? So they were almost like, you know, maybe, they, I don't know, but they said that, that perhaps maybe they might even uh, like it better or whatever. And it became such a thing. And then they said African women were sexually pure. It's like, no, African women <laughs> were not sexually pure. I'm laughing a lot, but I won't say why. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I was like, what do you mean sexually pure? I know, I ain't. Sexually pure. I was like, what yeah. the actual fuck? You know, you, well, just because you see these women and also the fact that they used to walk around topless is it old oh my god i think i told you about this i got into a fight with my daughter's school did i tell you about this no tell me uh basically they sent a letter home first of all uh they rang me and they said uh that she walked out of school and i was like that's unlike her she just won't walk out of school and and she said she texted me she said i am so angry and she said uh so she, they were in a lecture and then they were being told uh, they are going to be raising money for people in Africa. So they were told uh, that um, African women, uh, basically, they don't wear underwear. So they're quite unhygienic and they're more likely to get raped. It's just generally African women, not yeah, like yeah. in a yeah. big country. Yeah. And, yeah. Wow. and they're more likely to get raped and all of this stuff. And she walked out. She walked out. She should have. Absolutely, she should have walked out. I'm yeah. the same. And I was like, when I found out why, I was like, oh, good girl. <laughs> and... Uh, so I got into a thing with this teacher and I said, do you actually know what you're teaching is racism? You are teaching racism. So what happens when African girls actually attend your school? What, what, what happens with these girls? So the other girls, imagine it, God forbid, if one of them were to get raped, all the other girls would be blaming them, telling them you're hygienic. Why are you teaching this to people? I said, listen, I am African. And I was discussing this with other African women in the diaspora. They were outraged. They were going to come here for a protest. She was shocked. And I was like, imagine if we replaced that African women are unhygienic and likely to get raped. Imagine if we changed that with women of Liverpool or women of Wales. How do you think they would react? And she had nothing to say. And, and the said, funny thing is, like, there's people on Twitter talking about how they don't wash their legs. People <laughs> <laughs> talk about fundraising for people who are clean. You just start about the, the Twitter people that wash their legs. <laughs> Something. Anyone who is in any doubt, there is nobody cleaner than somebody who's African descended. My God, the way we are scrubbed by our parents. I know. Like that little with our wash. I know. I remember. <laughs> I have such vivid memories of standing up in my bathtub and my dad with some hard soap, like yeah. my dad bleaching soap. God knows oh, yeah. where it was. And his mesh just scrubbing me down like I didn't. When I stinned, it was just the morning. Oh, <laughs> and honestly, there was nobody on this planet cleaner than an African. Oh, seriously. And this teacher, this teacher, she wound me up so badly. And I said to her, so what are you going to do? They were going to Zambia. And I said, so what are you going to do in Zambia? They said, oh, we are going to, to see an 
orphanage. And I said, so these children from a posh uh, school are going to go to Zambia to an orphanage. What contribution are they going to add to their lives? Other than gloat about how good their lives are, what contribution are you going to give these children in an orphanage? And you've already told them how unhygienic these people are. And she, she couldn't, she couldn't, she was, it's the first time I think she's ever been confronted on, on all of this. And I said, what you're teaching is racism. And I strongly object to all of this. And she was like, would you like to come to the school and give us a talk? Why, why should I use my labor? Yeah. To give, why don't you fix, why don't you change yourself and give you, and this is, this is, this is what annoys me. This has happened to me before. Yeah. I've gotten into um, a debate with an individual. Yeah. Um, it was a while ago and it was about racism. And he was like, okay, look, let's meet up and you can tell me more about it. It's like, I have better things to do. Yeah, I've got my own shit to do. And then he was like, and he turned on me and was like, well, I've offered you this, this honor blast. Like, it would be a pleasure yeah. to sit in a prep with a white guy and tell him about how awful he is. And this is another thing too, like, they, they just thought, we'll go to, we'll go to, um, was it Zambia? Yeah. I'll go to Zambia and we'll go to an orphanage yeah. and we'll just make things better because white people in that mentality, with that mentality, yeah. think their presence is a present. Like, unless you just open your wallets. That's what I say to anybody these days. I'm yeah. like, open your wallet. If you don't want to read the book, yeah. if you don't want to do the learning, yeah. just open your wallet. Yeah. Because we don't need you to just stand there and go. Yeah. Well, this and... is it. And I say the only thing that's going to happen is that those girls are going to come back and they're going to be gloating about how much better their lives are than those those orphanages. And I said, why, why can you not go and help the poor children who are going to bed hungry in this country? Why can't you? Why can't you organize a trip to help those children who are going hungry in this country? Why? And she had nothing to say. I said because this is the same old narrative that has been sort of peddled around for 70, 90 years about Africa. And she was just like really, really shocked. And then guess what? When the Black Lives Matter thing happened, quite a few students, uh, ethnic minority students from the school, they signed a petition to say that their school is quite racist and the headmistress was very shocked to hear that at her school is uh, is, is racist and she, she sent a, a global email saying oh we, we, we need to learn what we are teaching or whatever I, I was so shocked by, by all of that stuff and, uh, um, and my, my daughter said to me mommy um, today I'm not going to go to school we have a lecture and I said uh, and this was after school and I said, why? She said, uh, it's, it's, um, it's meant to be feminism, but it's been done by Anne Whitcomb. And I was like, oh, good girl. <laughs> I was like, good girl. What school did your daughter go to? I mean, come on. It doesn't this... sound like... Well, yeah, uh, because she, yeah, she went to an independent school. But, but some, some, some of these places, you're just like, um, they, are, they are geared towards a certain type of demographics. And of course, they, a lot of Africans go to some of these places because you know you you just think that but some of the content that is taught you're like uh no i always say like if you're bringing up a child well, this should be the case for all of your children but specifically for our children yeah like you've got to do a lot of teaching in the, in the home yeah. you cannot rely no. on the british no. education no. No, no. No. to be non-racist or at least anti-racist yeah. to be inclusive to oh. be, and, and not be tokenistic and i i'm and what i feel um what I, I feel a certain way about is that I, I'm in a position to do that as an educated person, as someone yeah. who believes in lifelong learning. Yeah. So I read a lot. And yeah. um, not everybody else has that luxury. And it's like, well, how no. can we better help each other yeah. educate our children who are in this really flawed system at the moment? Because the system doesn't work. Oh, it doesn't work for white people. It doesn't work for us. No. Um, and it doesn't work for anybody. And that's and like the statistic you said earlier about having yeah. reading age of 12, it's yeah. not working in lots of different ways. So how can we 
how can we circumvent that? Um, and I'm going to end on that question yeah. because if I if we even have a discussion about how to answer that question, this podcast will be five hours. <laughs> we'll be here all night. <laughs> yeah, we, we will be. Um, Jambi, I'm, I had loads of other things I want to talk about, but this will this has just basically been a really interesting chat yeah, about. Yeah, it's lovely chatting to you. Yeah, but yeah, I was gonna say a lovely chat about how mad white people are, uh, which is how all my podcasts end up. <laughs> I'm starting to notice a pattern. Maybe it's just me. Well, the thing is that uh, my husband is white. <laughs> yeah, well, I can't, well, yeah, which is obvious from your surname. Yeah, which is also obvious because you could be like Jamaican. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People yeah. like the biggest slaveholders in Jamaica. Yeah. You see, I always find the way to bring it back. Always. Yeah. Okay, let's, I'll end on this. So your husband, yeah. when you met him, was he already woke or did you have to kind of educate him? as? The, I, I wasn't woke, neither was he. So yeah. so both of us weren't woke and we've kind of gone on this journey together. And oh, okay. Yeah. So I, I would say that I was just, you know, I was educated in... Uh, sort of under the British system, but in Kenyan schools because yeah. it's kind of the same. So you're not woke, uh, and uh, it's only like a journey that I've been through. And now he he is like if he hears us talking about this, he'll roll his eyes and start colonialism again or whatever. Um, but but yeah, he, you know he wasn't woke, but now he's uh, he's on board. He he knows he he's, he's seen it. Uh, yeah. I have that word. He's good. He ha- he's good. he has seen it. He has yeah. seen it. Even his own mother, you know, like I talk about a little bit about his own, about his mother, but his own mother, she was just like, she would rather never see us again rather than accept me. <laughs> oh, is- this is, you know, this is um, an experience that I have and it's, 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 what this, this is the only thing that bothers me. Yeah. It's like, we can't marry everybody. Yeah. <laughs> I'm saying, we can't marry every white person to show you this. You yeah. can't. If you have to live our life yeah. and walk in our shoes and have, or be stood next to us yeah. at these moments where we experience this, to believe it, yeah. it's not going to work. No. It's not going to get better. No. We, but this is why I get really annoyed. You go, oh my God, mixed relationships. They're so great. They're through society. It's like, we can't marry you all. <laughs> this we can't is, do it. It's not possible. We won't have any time left. Exactly. It's, it's, it's lovely. And I think it's great. And I think it's a really good demonstration of what can happen to an individual yeah. when he mar- when they marry someone with a different culture, because you learn from it, you become a better person. But that's yeah. an individual journey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not, not a very efficient way to make things better. No, and, no. Yes. I think there are easier ways. But I've met your other half and he's lovely. Oh, thank <laughs> um, you. Yeah, he came to see my Edinburgh show one time. Yeah, like, oh, we came together. Yeah, he always, um, yeah. So, yeah. listen, Jambi, it's been a pleasure. I always aim to do, like, 30 minutes of recording and make it really quick to edit. I always end up chatting for ages. We've been going on for, like, an hour now. <laughs> yes, oh, I have to say this. So, normally, like I said, people would come around and get, like, a bowl full of plantain and right. hospitality. Nice. You have a plantain voucher that oh. you can... Yes, any, nice. at any point, at any point in time yeah. that you feel like you want some plantain, come down to Enfield, North London... I will do. And we'll, we'll, it'll be available. So that's your voucher. I'm giving it to you virtually. Um, oh, put, thanks very much. On, on presentation, you will get a plate of plantain. Mm. I, yeah, I, I, the moment these uh, travel restrictions are lifted and all of the COVID stuff, I will be around there. <laughs> <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. Jamie, thank you for coming to keep my company. Thank you so much. Take care.
So that was Jambi McGrath. Thank you, Jambi, for coming um, onto my podcast. I'm really pleased that we got to have this conversation. Jambi's amazing. She's, as a Kenyan, she's just studied her history so well and she continues to study it. And I, I champion that because if we don't study it, who else is going to tell us the truth about about our past and, and where we come from and what happened to our people and our relatives and our ancestors? Her debut book, which is a memoir, Through the Leopard's Gaze, please buy it. Um, I, it's phenomenal. Um, and it's a demonstration of all the work she's done to think about herself and her own personal history. And I look forward to reading her fiction books too. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. I'm Athena Kabenu. I'm a stand-up comedian and I'm a writer. You can follow me online. You can follow this podcast. If you liked it, you can put comments on it and like say I liked it. Or you can send it to your friends and family and all that stuff. There are buttons and things for you to do that somewhere on whatever podcast platform you are using. I appreciate you. Thank you for listening and we will catch up next time.